My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. So this is where the challenge emerges, and this is where Weber distinguishes between forms of domination. Forms of domination is the language he uses. And he says there are three types of legitimacy in law. Three types of legitimacy, and these will elicit obedience. On one hand, you have traditional. Traditional obedience. So, my cousin with the bowl of pomegranate, the family that we are a part of could be regarded as traditional in that way. And he knew, as I said, we said, what are you doing? All he did was get up and go get the other bowls. He knew what he was required to do in that moment. I am the older cousin. He's going to get me a bowl. Simple as that. That is the way that traditional setup operates. She wants to get married again. She has to have it annulled. Traditional form of legitimacy. Second type, legal the one we've been discussing up until now. Third type, charismatic. Charismatic. Why would a bunch of people, as we've seen happen on a few occasions, why would a bunch of people, all, in say a room like this or bigger than this, administer to themselves poison, administer to, to their children poison, and commit mass suicide. It's always done for a charismatic leader. There is a leader telling them, this is what you must do. People here have heard of a cult before. We look at this and we say, what kind of nonsense is that? And we say, no, it's not about referring to that as nonsense. You're not judging it from your perspective. You are seeing that there's a normative order in operation that people obey are opting to abide by. So Weber points and he says we have traditional, we have legal, and we have charismatic. Now he dismisses traditional and charismatic. And he dismisses these, as he says the principles underpinning them are arbitrary. They're arbitrary. Why should I listen to the charismatic leader? Because the charismatic leader tells me I should listen to them. Why should I follow the precepts within a holy text because I regard those precepts as authoritative. It's tautological. Tautological in the sense circular logic. That is it. So he said there's an arbitrariness to that. There's nothing I can do to change it. The charismatic leader is the charismatic leader. The Quran, the Bible, the Old Testament, they are what they are, and that is it. It ends there. And this is where he develops this idea surrounding rational law and ultimately legalism. And he says legalism possesses a type of legitimacy that is not just distinct, but superior to all the other forms. And he goes on, and we don't have time to discuss this, but I draw you towards Trubeck's piece. He goes on to describe a few things about 
the, the, uh, he paints a picture effectively of European society and he points to the way this rational law emerged. He points to the procedures surrounding the development of law. So could we tomorrow adopt a bill that <coughs> prohibits all, um, uh, let's see, um, all black people from driving, that prohibits all women from driving, that prohibits all um, people of Asian descent from driving? Can Parliament adopt a law like that tomorrow? So in theory it would be yes, why is that? Precisely, parliamentary sovereignty. Now what would curb Parliament from doing so? Rule of law, but we have to think. Rule of law is in the abstract. What would prevent Parliament from doing that? Anyone? European Convention of Human Rights. So that would be a breach of it. But if they were to withdraw, rescind the European Convention of Human Rights, what would stop Parliament from adopting that law? The answer? Nothing. That is the nature of parliamentary supremacy. That is the nature of parliamentary sovereignty. It can adopt whichever laws it pleases. It is not bound by anything. We've created a supreme parliament. So he goes into detail about that. Procedurally consistent rules. He speaks about a specialized cabal people who themselves are professionals and develop the system, and we have that. You are studying to become part of this cabal. And there are people who engage in the interpretation of it. Again, judges. All of that is kept separate from the public. We can witness it, we can observe it, but we can't influence it. So I can't write a letter to Supreme Court Justice Hale saying to her, hey, can you rule this way? Well, I could write the letter, but she wouldn't even read it because it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with her interpretation of the law. That is what the law empowers her to do. So Weber details all of that. And then he comes to the final part then of his examination of law and capitalism. And he says that we have a strong link between this legalistic system that has emerged and capitalist development. If it was not for this legalistic system that possesses both legitimacy and authority, capitalism would not have been possible. And he says there are two key aspects to law in Europe that made capitalism possible. The first one, it's an ugly word that he uses, calculability. <clears throat> and he says the degree of calculability, the degree to which we produce a stable system of law, the de degree to which we create a predictable climate. Do you know what would happen if someone were to take your jacket? Well, yes. What will she do? Confront them, possibly. Call the police. And if it turns out that this person did thieve her jacket, we know precisely what will unfold. There's a degree of predictability. In most times, you can rely on that. But the second element, and this is the crucial one that I was alluding to earlier, the capacity to develop laws 
that will facilitate the functioning of a capitalist system. Consider it this way, take it out of the abstract. If Parliament decides that it needs a new law to regulate issues around privacy, what does Parliament do? It adopts a new law. That's what it does. If it decides that it needs a new law to facilitate banking transactions, what does it do? It adopts a new law. If Parliament decides that it needs a new agreement, an international agreement with another nation state, what does it do? It pursues an international agreement with another nation state. It has that, and this is the third characteristic that he points to, in addition to the legitimacy and the rationality, it has that autonomy. The autonomy to craft the laws that are needed to develop the desired economic system. Without that autonomy, if you are limited to the charismatic leader, if you are limited to the traditional system, then as society evolves, as things become more complex, then your ability to adapt are stifled because you are still having to follow what are a series of arbitrary rules. And not arbitrary in the negative sense of the word. Arbitrary in that they are already decided. And I cannot change them in the way that in this system I can devise, draft, debate, and ultimately adopt any law I please. So if I have that autonomy, then it's possible for me to change the relations between you. Does anyone ever expect to see a female pope? Chances are most people have never even thought of it. There has never been one. There is unlikely to ever be one. And there are reasons within canon law that lead us to that. Does anyone expect to see a female head of state? Oh yeah, we've had that plenty of times. Because you devise laws that create that possibility. That is the difference. So Weber points to the legitimacy. We regard the laws legitimate. The rationality. We have a system by which we can devise laws that are coherent and consistent. And the autonomy. We can make whichever laws we please. And he says those three characteristics were essential in the development of capitalism. As capitalism, go back to what I said earlier, encourages a type of behavior. What did Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Milton Friedman, Friedman what did each one say? Self-interest is what matters most. Egotistical behavior, the celebration of the self, the deification of me. Now, if you believe in that, which is fine, then that in itself 
is going to create, is going to encourage a certain type of behavior. But consider, if it's all about you. Actually, I was sitting on the train yesterday and there was a barrister sitting across from me having a conversation with a couple of other barristers about a case they were going to litigate. Um, and he turns to one barrister and says to her, what did I do wrong in this past life that resulted in this? And she looks at him and says, oh yeah, it's all about you. And he turns to her without skipping a beat and says, yes, it is all about me. Very matter-of-factly. And I thought, wow, can someone please punch him in the face? <laughs> but that type of self-interest, right, that type of egoism is encouraged in legal edge, I mean in society. <laughs> but what does it necessarily lead to? Well, it'll lead to conflict. Because what matters, what matters is you. What matters is you. What matters is you. So if you made a commitment to her, and you ultimately decide that this commitment that you made to her, you actually don't want to honor because it's not really in your interest. What does egoism tell you to do? To not honor it. Simple as that. Why? What do I care? It's about me. We say, no, no, there is integrity. You've made a commitment. To hell with the commitment. It's about me. So if I don't want to commit, I don't commit. But you already committed. Well, I revoke my commitment. So the point that Weber makes is that capitalism would not function if it did not, in one hand, encourage egotistical behavior, while on the other, curbing egotistical behavior. I must control it. So if she makes a commitment to her in contract, then she is bound. Even if ultimately she determines it's not in her self-interest to carry out, to perform her obligations, she is still bound. Consider this from within a number, another normative body. Now, if I make a commitment to my family to support my uncle in the pursuit of a particular project, and then it turns out, I discover that my uncle is a con artist and that along the way he is thieving a bunch of money from others. Am I within my rights to say this conflicts with my morals and I'm not going to support you in this anymore? Presumably people would say, well yes, because the nature of that commitment that has been made, the basis for my commitment exists within a specific normative order. But within the state system, if she discovers something about that party, the other party, that she finds morally reprehensible, she voted for Theresa May. Sorry. <laughs> but if she does find something morally reprehensible, is she now absolved from the contract she signed? Of course not. Putting in place another normative system that absolves her of those obligations would undermine the predictability of the system. 
I know that if I sign a contract, that person is obligated to perform. And if they do not perform, there is a procedure in place that I can pursue to seek remedies, to have that remedied, either to force the performance or to be compensated for the non-performance. That in itself ends up being the essence within capitalism, the essence of legalism as it relates to capitalism. Without those regulations, without those rules, capitalism cannot function. Which is why when someone says we must deregulate, do they mean that we must eliminate all proprietary rights and create a free-for-all where anybody can squat your home if they have the ability to push you out? Of course not. Do they mean that you should be able to buy citizenship? Of course not. Do they mean that you should be able to pay money to obtain a seat in the House of Lords? Well, sort of, but <laughs> not for elected positions. The idea of deregulation is itself a misnomer. It is an oxymoron. It is impossible to deregulate a capitalist system because capitalism is contingent on a rational legal order. Without a rational legal order, capitalism is impossible. Which means then, underpinning, and this is what we'll conclude on, underpinning the global market are regulations. Some of these regulations are invisible, but they're invisible merely because we've either A, normalized them, or B, accepted the moral imperative underpinning that regulation. So we don't regard it as a regulation, it is just there. Without rational regulation, without the autonomy that a rational legal system enjoys, it is impossible to have a capitalist system. However, and this is what I conclude on, by privileging regulations that support capitalism, we are making a choice, a choice that results in the market distributing resources. And that has implications, as you've seen from your materials and as we will see throughout the module. We are privileging some norms over others. So in the end, the struggle over law is not just the struggle over the economy or over economic relations or either even over normative orders. The struggle is ultimately over the type of society that we wish to inhabit. I see everyone next week.